I'm here with Father Gabriel Gillen, a Dominican priest, the executive director of the Rosary Shrine of St. Jude in D.C. And uh, we just had you on Life on the Rock talking about the Angelic Warfare Confraternity. But I would like to hear your own kind of story of becoming a Dominican. And uh, it's like you had some exciting experiences. First, tell us where you're from. And I'm from a little beach town, uh, Rockaway Beach, New York, which is near... JFK Airport, and it is uh, about 45 minutes outside of Manhattan, and the very uh, western point of Long Island geographically. So on one end you have Montauk, and the other end you have Rockaway Breezy Point. So I was born in Breezy Point, which is the very end of Rockaway, and uh, grew up on that little peninsula, little beach town. Okay, you came from a big family? Uh, uh, two older sisters and a younger brother. Mm. Uh, all Catholic uh, parents, and my mom's from Ireland, and uh, I basically went to a Catholic grammar school and high school, and then in college I went to a state university in New York, Stony Brook. Okay. What was that like, having a mom from Ireland? How old was she when she came over? She was in her 20s, and uh, she came over, she had an uncle over here, and then her brother followed her, and they both stayed there. Um, they remain there their whole lives and um it was funny uh, when we were little children we all had the irish accent the brogue and uh, uh our cousins used to think that was funny they they kind of you know a little banter about our, about our voices because we we're always around our mother so we spoke like we were from ireland mm -hmm. and when i was in grammar school i remember somebody says oh your mom uh you know has a strange accent and i was like what are you talking about and like i never <laughs> heard her accent and uh so in any event um yeah, but it's nice, and we have relatives that are still over there. They have a farm in Southern Ireland in Cork, so, oh. so that's, that's nice. We go back to visit from time to time, and they come over to visit us. And she grew up kind of like then on the farm? and She grew up with a big family on the farm. Her father was very devout, and um, you know everybody was Catholic, but her father was particularly devout. Um, there's some, on my mom's side of the family, there's some people that were, you know, um, involved in religious life, you know, both sisters and some, uh, uh, one fellow was an abbot at a monastery in Ireland. And yeah, so some yeah. devout family. Yeah. What are some of like the Irish lessons she would teach you or what, what about you today is Irish? That yeah. Could... Yeah. It's definitely, it will, at first it was more just uh, you know, you're Irish and it, like Irish Catholic. And then I realized there's a lot more to it. The Irish um, have a good sense of humor, um, especially in difficult times. They, they're, you know, all their, um, you know, songs about, uh, you know, they have a good uh, levity in difficult situations. Uh, I think that's one thing that I picked up from uh, being Irish. It's, it's kind of an outlook on thing. You, you can you could be serious, but you can have levity as well. Even in the midst of battles, Irish were known to, you know, crack jokes and things mm -hmm. like that. And uh, it, it it I think it rallies a lot of people around uh, uh, a perspective of, uh, you know, G.K. Chesterton used to like the Irish, and he says angels take themselves lightly. You know, that's why they mm -hmm. can fly. There's mm -hmm. something that you can actually move fast when you when you have some levity and. Mm -hmm. uh, or George Washington talked about that with the troops. He liked the Irish troops. They, they uh, that came over and were 
part of the Revolutionary Wars is they had a great levity about them that lifted mm-hmm. morale in difficult right. times. Mm-hmm. So, and I would imagine too that she grew up pretty. Was it poor and yeah, very simple, life. very yeah. yes. They yeah. all yeah, all the girls slept in like one room. It was yeah. very uh, oh, wow. poor, simple. But they yet uh, very rich uh, experiences when they would describe things. You could tell, um, you know, Christmas they would walk to mass and looking up at night, and they go to midnight mass and looking up at the stars, and coming back and having a little piece of chocolate on Christmas mm-hmm. morning and uh, after the the midnight mass, and they just had beautiful experiences where, uh, yeah, there was a lot of joy, yeah. a lot of music, uh, a lot mm-hmm. of joy. So you growing up, you practiced the faith, and church? I did. Uh, it, and but in college, I definitely fell away. As soon as I was living on my own, I, I wasn't when I was at, uh, at Stony Brook. I wasn't going to mass unless I was home, and um, you know the rule was, you know, if you're home, you're going to mass on yeah. Sunday. And uh, I used to view though my faith more like Thanksgiving. You know, it was an important family tradition but wasn't really a integral part it wasn't alive it wasn't I didn't have that real connection with Christ and um, that came later but um, it was still important uh, what I did receive it wasn't catechized well you know was, uh, I graduated college in 85 and uh, you know the catechesis in the 80s weren't wasn't the greatest in high mm-hmm. school and in grammar school you know mm-hmm. so um I thought I knew more about the faith than I did and uh, was yeah. happy to learn later on how rich the Catholic yeah. faith yeah. is. So what happened? You, you go to Stony Brook, you study business? And, study business. Yeah. Um, part of the thing that happened was my oldest sister, she was in the military. She was a lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne, was always top of her class, used to run marathons, musician, and she had an offer to stay in the military and they would make her a captain and she was gonna teach at West Point. But when she came home my senior year for Thanksgiving, she told us that she changed her plans. She really started to take her fate seriously. She was gonna resign her commission when it was, you know, her term expired. And um, she wanted to go to Franciscan University of Steubenville, which I never heard of. And she wanted to get a master's degree and she wanted to serve the church. She wanted to teach or do something. So. Everybody was like polite, but we're like, oh my goodness, she mm-hmm. must be in the Bible Belt in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And she kind of has taken this a little over the top. And I was trying to talk her out of it more than anybody else. And, um, and f- but then she was getting upset. I was just asking her, like, couldn't you still go to West Point and take classes in the evening? And, you know, I was just g- gave all different things. And wouldn't you be a better witness to other people if you were? teaching at West Point, and then you could go out and get a degree afterwards. I just kept bringing things up, and uh, she finally got upset, so I backed off. And I said, well, you're going out to Ohio. I'm sure it's a nice place out in the country, and probably beautiful scenery. And she got all upset. She says, no, it's in a stinky little steel town, and I'm going to go there anyway. <laughs> I said, all right, all right, and that was the end of that with the questioning. So, um, but she ended up getting sick of formal leukemia, uh, aplastic anemia, and... Um, she um, basically, within like four months, passed away. Mm. My other sister gave her two bone marrow transplants, but they both failed. And our family was always close, but we really came close t- together at that time. But my takeaway from that was like, life is short. 
I, I didn't have a religious experience and I just remember saying, well, life is short, you gotta work hard and make your mark and that's it. So when I started working in finance, I worked hard, I started doubling my income every year and it, you know, it was really hard work, but um, I was doing well. And what got me though was, let me yeah, step in. Yeah. You're on down on Wall Street, is yes, that right? Yes, yeah, downtown on Wall Were Street. Were you on the floor with hand signals? I wasn't on the floor, <laughs> they're the traders, and mm -hmm. I was in a, a, an office, and uh, it's kind of like the movie Wall Street, I, it, uh, um, where you have uh, Martin Sheen and the son, the Charlie Sheen, and Charlie mm -hmm. Sheen's the stockbroker, yeah. more like that type of thing. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're just trying to sell get people to buy these? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked for some pretty good firms. I started at the World Trade Center uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, in 1989. And then I worked for a, a really good firm that had its own trading floor. So that had a smaller trading floor. They're all at desks. And I was right off those desks, but I was talking to people on the phone, high net worth mm -hmm. individuals. And it was a great research firm. And I was doing really well. It was a very prestigious firm and I had a great position. And I had a manager who was really successful and he was training me and making me work really hard. He was a good boss, and, but he made you work hard and you did well when you worked hard. So I, but he got me into meditation more for, but not, you know, more like Eastern meditation, just being silent, nothing yeah. too spiritual. Mm -hmm. But that began a process of me searching. Mm -hmm. It became a, a spiritual process. I went from looking at kind of like Dave Dwyer and Deepak Chopra type of pop, uh, westernized uh, meditation um, to um, uh, looking at things in general, spirituality. So it began a searching process. I began reading a lot, going to Barnes and Noble, reading books. So one day I'm in a Barnes and Noble and uh, there's a book on Marian apparitions, Fatima Lords and all these things and I knew nothing about that. And something just made me pick up the book and I that began a, uh, a process of looking into the Catholic faith. And I remember reading about it just as if this stuff is true, I just want to know whether it's true or not. Because if, if it's true, that means that, you know, nobody else is making claims like this. And if yeah. this is true, that means Christ is true. The Blessed Mother has really done these things. So uh, it, it piqued my curiosity to search more. And I ended up calling a buddy of mine who was in the military with my sister. He stayed a friend of the family after my sister passed away. My sister, uh, when he was in the 82nd Airborne, he had Ranger Tab, went through the tough Ranger School. She wrote him a letter and it helped him get through. It was very motivational and she was sharing about her faith and perspective on things. And it helped him get through Ranger School. He almost fell, cycled out of Ranger School mm -hmm. a couple of times, but he stuck in there. And he reread that letter years later when he was working for a big company. He had a good job and um, it made him go back to Sugarville. So oh. I knew he was there. And when I started searching years later, uh, he, you know, mm -hmm. we knew each other for about three or four years. Um, I called him up and I started asking him questions. And he says, why don't you just come out and visit? Why don't you come out and visit? And I had no intention of visiting. I didn't even know he was going to the same place that my sister had mm -hmm. intended to go. I didn't remember that. Mm -hmm. And um, and finally, he he, I just wanted to get information from him. But every mm -hmm. time I'd call him for information, he'd keep asking me to come out. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there was like a Delta flight for like a ridiculously low price. He says, hey, now you can come out. Look at this, it's a great deal. <laughs> and I had nothing planned mm -hmm. that weekend. And I was like, all right, I'll go. 
So I went out and I had a great experience. And I went back to confession for the first time. And uh, that would have been early 90s. Yeah, that was early 90s. And uh, um, met a lot of interesting people who were graduate students who kind of had reversions to the faith. And they were all normal. You had guys like Ted Treat, uh, Tim Gray. You had a bunch of guys who were, you know, very involved with the church today. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was just a great experience. And when I came back, I realized I started going to mass every day. Um, I started praying the rosary. I knew I, I needed to learn more about my faith and I knew I couldn't do it where I was living. So I made the decision. I said, I called up my friend, Mark, who's now father, Mark Ropel. And I said, why didn't you send me an application? And he's like, you serious? I'm like, yeah, just send me an application. And I applied, I got accepted to the master's program. And a couple of months later, maybe less than two months later, I ended up moving out of New York, just realized I just had to make that decision and go. Were you living in Manhattan, beautiful apartment? I had a really nice apartment, 21st floor, nice view of the, of the skyline. I had a childhood friend and his cousin, we were roommates, three of us had a really mm-hmm. nice apartment. Uh, up on the top of the whole uh, building, was a, a nice pool and a, a workout place, and uh, so yeah, it was um, it was it was a very nice place. And I remember the first night I moved into Steubenville, I'm hearing gunshots and I'm living in this dumpy old apartment on this really ugly room and bed, and I'm like, what have I done? And like it was a harsh realization that boy, I kind of jumped before I, I I looked, I leaped before I looked, and. Uh, I was a little concerned. That, that was I remember being very concerned a couple nights in a row. Like, what was I thinking? And it was it was more like the people you met at Steubenville and the, and the confession that inspired you. Yeah, and then I, I did go to, I went on a pilgrimage. I brought my brother with me as a guinea pig. He knew nothing about this. I brought him to Medjugorje, and mm-hmm. we both had strong experiences there. So that was part of it, too. Uh, but the main thing was, yeah, coming back to confession and then mm-hmm. starting to go to daily mass. That mm-hmm. was a big big experience and then and then reading and then then the other people i just was hungry for information Mm -hmm. i think that's a sign of vocation when i unofficially discern with somebody a vocation i don't tell them anything but i ask and i'm looking for certain things and one is like this desire to you know just to study and to learn about all different things about the church and and the faith so you, you got a master's degree at Steubenville? I started the process, yeah. but after about a year and a half, Bishop Chaput, uh, Archbishop Chaput, he was in the Dakotas at the time. I picked him up for a conference when I was at Steubenville mm-hmm. and drove him to him from the airport. We had a lot of conversations to and fro. And he just said, you know, if you even think you have a vocation, you really need just to, Jesus just said, come and see. He didn't mm-hmm. explain everything mm-hmm. about it. He says, you could be here for the next two, three years. You're still not going to know. The only way you're going to know is if you go and you walk with Christ and you go into a seminary or religious life. So that really stayed with me. You know, it wasn't just the zeal of him saying it once. It stayed with me for days and weeks. And I realized, all right, I'm going to do this. And um, I looked at a bunch of different groups. And I, I, after a year and a half, I was doing my philosophy, really. I... Uh, because uh, I didn't have any philosophy. So I, I did a lot of my philosophy. And um, after a semester in Austria, I, I, I was in Ohio for a year, did a semester in Austria, but 
before I left for Austria, I quit my job. I had moved my job from New York to Pittsburgh, and I was studying for a year and still working oh. in finance. But then after a year, I said, I'm, that's it, I'm done. Yeah. And I went to, spent a semester in Austria. I had a great experience traveling around Europe, went to Poland, went to the Divine Mercy Shrine before anybody was really going there, you know, <laughs> in the early ni- in 93, 90, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, maybe it was 94. Yeah. Maybe it was, 90, no, it was 95, 95 I was, I was there. 95 was my semester at Steubenville. Did you go to Denver World Youth Day? Or? I did not. No. Uh, okay. um, but it was, um, yeah, so then I, I joined the Society of Apostolic Life, SALT, and um, uh, did a, worked in a fishing boat in Alaska on a salmon boat with some guys from Steubenville. Uh, and then after that semester, that summer in Austria, uh, after the semester in Austria, did a summer in Alaska, then went into a novitiate in New Mexico. Spent so almost a year. They did it a little less than a year in New Mexico. Then they wanted to start a mission in Kenya, in Africa, in Nairobi. So I went there for my first year of theology. Uh, we all kept getting sick over there. It was a good experience, but we kept getting sick, and we ended up studying, moving to Rome from Africa, and I, I finished my studies in Rome. But everywhere I went, at Steubenville, in Austria, in um, Kenya, and in Rome, I always studied with Dominicans. So I ended up mm-hmm. being drawn towards the Dominican spirituality right. and, and ended up, after being ordained for five years uh, with the Soul community, ended up joining the Dominican order. Oh, okay. Then. Did you you knew Father Flanagan? Is, yeah, uh, yep. I knew Father Flanagan. I was serving with him at our house of formation in Rome uh-huh. uh, at the time. While and then I I told him I was you know discerning a vocation towards the Dominicans and mm-hmm. uh, and they were all very good guys. But it was just uh, the the studying the saints, the Dominican saints, really drew me. You know? Yeah. What he I've heard that he had like a special gift Flanagan for like discerning charisms and things. Did you find that to be true, or is that? Uh, yes and no. I mean, he he certainly had some insights. Um, his spirituality was more based on uh, that mystical city of God, uh, uh, Mary Agrita, Mary Agrita, which Father Solanus Casey was very yeah. attached to, but it, there. There were some dualisms that were in there, like when I started giving teachings on the theology of the body, his view on the body was more like, you know, you, you really, like St. Francis originally thought he was like, and later on he realized he was too harsh yeah, on his body, yeah, St. Francis. Yeah. Um, Father Flanagan really thought that's the way you go all the way yeah, through. Yeah, he was yeah. very hard on the body, run yourself into exhaustion, yeah. You know, and, and it's it's all about strengthening the will, and there's a lot some truth in that, yeah. and it's good for a time, but yeah. if it's all the time, it's not, right. it's not good. Right. So in any event, um, Buddy died on a Good Friday, you know, a number of years ago, right. and uh, you know he led a good life, but even saintly people can have a very platonic spirituality that uh, I don't think it has the same breath as. Um, you know, like Father Grishel wouldn't have been like that. Like, you know, yeah, there's more yeah. of a, uh, more established orders have a groundedness. Right, uh, right. So because he was starting a new order, but didn't yeah. experience a new order, you know, didn't, yeah. wasn't part of an older religious order. I think there's a lot of, um, 
and, and didn't even, you know, wasn't like starting a new Franciscan group. Mm -hmm. the CFRs were part of a lo longer tradition as campus, any any yeah. any Franciscan group is yeah. too. You're, you, you know, having the wisdom of somebody who's lived uh, older members of communities that are part of a, a longer religious tradition, they bring with them a lot. So in any yeah. event, but you know, a uh, uh, good guy, uh, he was um, in World War II, he's part of the first frogmen, he played football for Notre Dame. So, you know, yeah. definitely an interesting background and yeah. unique way of looking at things. But um, yeah, the, the spirituality, I, I sometimes the sermon, you know, there were there were some pro he would try to take in priests from dioceses that mm -hmm. were through programs where there, even a liberal diocese was saying this person should be laicized, <laughs> and he was so it's like well if they sell if he celebrates one more mass it's worth it. Yeah. So mm -hmm. yes, he was good at certain things, but like yeah. it was hit or miss because it was so spiritual. Yeah. He'd never see something right. that was more common sense. Yeah. So you studied at the Angelicum and got a doctorate? And... I, I did a STB, I did a master's, and I did all my coursework for an STL, but then I entered into the novitiate of the Dominicans. Okay. And you didn't do any further studies with them? Or... No, and I, I don't feel called to teach. Like yeah. they all were like, hey, you know, come on, do, you yeah. know, get another degree. And I, I was like, oh, I don't want another degree. <laughs> uh, and I just, it's not, I love preaching and yeah. I love doing parish missions. And because I'm 51, there's kind of a gap in guys in that area. And I've, they've already, I was only a member of the order for like five years. And I was, you know, in a in top administration position. Mm -hmm. I didn't want any, you know, it was like plenty for me. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, uh, and if you get an STL or a doctorate, you're going to be, they're just going to rotate you in for different leadership. We have term limits. Mm -hmm. So you serve only a certain amount of mm -hmm years and that's it and then somebody else is it so I just didn't want to be I my gift is not that you know that type of position I yeah. I know what my gifts are and, and I didn't want to get mm -hmm. it's not academic because you, know? yeah. you were in sales I would think that would help your why well, say say I mean finance yeah, yeah. I would think it, it, help it, it helped with yeah. the uh, yeah I'm part of the economic council I helped them with put uh, over the last six years do a lot of stuff with we have 18 parishes and a lot of stuff with finances yeah. i'm still very involved with mm -hmm. with a few other guys who have backgrounds in finance too so mm -hmm. um yeah but we're not great administrators like jesuits so we should have had a lot of this stuff in place for decades <laughs> if not longer been in the country since 1805 but um uh only of late we've really started because we've had all these vocations it's forcing us to put things in place yeah. that we never had in place before yeah, what do you think God is doing there with the <laughs> East Coast Dominicans are just ex well West Coast too. Hasn't West it? Coast got ten novices yeah. this year, yeah. and what the the difference is what what they did is they really beefed up their formation program. Mm -hmm. They it's a really good formation program. They always had parts of it that were good, and they improved upon it. And as soon as you do that, you know it's it attracts people, mm -hmm. and because um, yeah. Um, they, and, and that's what we did. Um, some of the other provinces throughout the world don't do that, but the ones that do have a good formation program tend to do well. Mm. You know? but, but some, it's, even though they see the success, they don't want to do it. So mm. it's like, you know, that's it's what it is. Like beefing it up, like having 
good classes, a good. So, so, yeah. so what happened was like we at one point we were getting a couple of guys a year, mm-hmm. and uh, but it was a big house. It used to have huge numbers, you know, in the fifties. Yeah. You know, you used to get classes of thirty people in Novitiate, big classes, and uh, we had this huge house in Washington D.C. and a lot of it was empty, and everybody's saying, you know what? We should just send the guys over to Catholic University. And why are we trying to teach our own guys? Why don't we just have them go across the street? There's a full program there, but it's not Thomistic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it seemed practical. Right. And at that point, we had to make a decision, either assign more guys, which they didn't have at the time, or you'd have to pull out of other ministries, uh, or, or, or send them all across the street to right. CUA. And they made the decision to, which was difficult, because um, when you assign a guy to your own house, you're not getting a salary. So the house needs a mm. salary, and you're, you know, you're not taking a job anywhere else. Right. You're just serving your own studium, and that was a risk. And but it worked, and, yeah. and that's why. So by assigning more guys to teach guys St. Thomas Aquinas to mystic philosophy and theology requires a commitment of friars to do that right. and uh, they did that and then after that it started to really do well yeah. um, more guys started coming because they wanted to be trained about a third of our guys are converts and they've read their way into the faith and some other guys have had reversions through grace through experiences of other people but also in that process you know you read they a lot of them were attracted to some type of teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas or something in that vein and they wanted to be trained in that themselves and if our program was a good program like CUA but wasn't that domestic by a Dominican teaching we wouldn't have the guys wouldn't have been coming to us you know mm. and same with the West they weren't they weren't training their own guys they were sending them out to other places and uh, yeah so you entered the Dominicans what year was that 2005 Okay. And there was a diocesan priest, Father Aquinas Gilbo, who's now the prior at the House of Studies, and myself. So it was nice having another priest in Novitiate with me. Uh, so. mm-hmm. And then, um, and then, so you do a year in um, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Then I did a year down in Washington D.C. Although I had, we didn't take any courses for credits. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we both got assigned to New York. I was at St. Catherine of Siena. Worked at a uh, cancer hospital at Sloan Kettering, which was the same place my sister died. Nobody knew that when they assigned me there. Mm. And that was very providential. I realized, I almost called the provincial says, I don't want to do this. It was like ground zero yeah. for me. Yeah. I didn't want to go near the place. Mm-hmm. But then I realized after giving it a week or so, mm-hmm. I was like, all right, I, I know I'm supposed to be doing yeah. this. And uh, it was a great experience. Did you have signs like of your sister's intercession for you? Yeah, definitely that? a lot of the, yeah. things happened throughout. Yeah. Um, there was, um, even when I was serving there, sometimes I'd literally be in the same room that she had died in and I'd be ministering to somebody in a difficult situation. Yeah. And I wouldn't tell them the, my yeah. story, but yeah. I could tell there was some good things going on with that. Yeah. And uh, um, yeah, definitely things about... Um, prayer and uh just you know you get those things that are beyond coincidence you know mm-hmm. uh that you know it's there's a connection there yeah. um so there's there was a i don't know there i i there were just so many throughout the years you know? yeah yeah um but uh yeah definitely 
that that uh, connection with her. You, know? right. you said you enjoy preaching and missions and things. What are some of the themes you like to preach on, or what do you see as a need out there? Well, by serving in the hospitals, I saw, uh, and even outside, uh, you know, like John Paul II's The Christian Meaning of Human Suffering, I see St. Thomas Aquinas says there's two things that keep people from not believing. Everything being uh, explained by science and the problem of pain, so to speak. Why does God allow bad things to happen mm -hmm. to good people? If he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, why is there suffering? So I wasn't an expert in science, and we have a lot of guys that are, so I never really concentrated on that because yeah. it's like you know we have scientists that are doing that and they're really good at explaining it you I have can, one a phd from stanford in physics yeah we I interviewed uh, Thomas him yeah. Davenport, yes <laughs> he's great and uh and um so yes i i didn't concentrate too much on that i'm like that's covered <laughs> yeah, but let uh, him cover it huh? yeah yeah but um i did come up like one time right before i went into the dominican novitiate this sister asked me would you give a talk, it was, uh, it was near an Indian reservation in, in Wyoming, and I was out there for a year. Um, that was one of the places I lived, transferring into the Dominicans. And um, she asked, would I give a talk to these grammar school students? And I said, yes, because I had given a homily. She liked the homily, and she said, why don't you give that talk to the children? And, I was, and then right before, like a couple days before, and I was like, oh my goodness, how am I going to explain, you know, the John Paul II's mm -hmm teaching on the Christian meaning of human yeah. suffering to children. Yeah. And I'm in the chapel, nothing's coming, I'm thinking about it, I'm reading about it, I'm researching, nothing. And uh, as I'm leaving the chapel kind of upset, I, I almost fell out of the pew when I looked up at the statue of the Blessed Mother and I saw the one of her on a globe and she has a crown of stars and she's stepping on the snake. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just hit me because I went to a serpentarium where they turn venom into anti-venom. Oh. And it just, the analogy just clicked, and then I researched it some more. Mm -hmm. But they only discovered in 1895, a protege of Louis Pasteur, Albert Clement, discovered you, you, you turn venom, you, you milk it from the snakes, you give it to sheep. The sheep has an immune response, like you're fighting a cold, to, to, the, mm -hmm. to the venom and the, and the blood of the lamb. It starts producing antibodies. They extract those antibodies from the blood of the lamb. And they purify it and they give it to those who've been stung. To this day, that's how they create antibodies. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how they create anti-venom. Well, Jesus is the Lamb of God yeah. who takes on all the venoms. And when we unite, when we offer up to God, the big venoms, the little venoms we've been stung with, you know, you're stubbing your toe, somebody saying something mean to you, or something big in life, whatever it is, big or small, you give that venom and that St. Paul describes, you can make up what is lacking in the body of Christ. Some parts of the body of Christ are paralyzed by sin, by suffering, by the venom that paralyzes the system, and other parts can make up for it. Other parts can start healing it. So um, I thought it was just a beautiful, if you look at all the way from Genesis to Revelation, the most common image that's used in all of Scripture is a lamb. And it's usually associated with suffering of some sort. And that really does open up the seals of Scripture. The Lamb opens up, the Lamb of Sacrifice mm -hmm. opens up all the seals of Scripture. And you just see this theme throughout. And you see that's what Christ was doing. He, 
was taking on suffering, and he sometimes asked his close friends like Teresa of Avila and others to take on suffering, John Paul II, so, so you could heal others. Yeah. You know, so I, it's a beautiful way of looking at things. So in any event, in a, in simple ways, I just was able to describe that to the children. The sister came up to me afterwards and was like, you have to, you have to write about that. You have to tell more people about that. And I found of all the things I've preached on, that's been the most effective. People have really, people have really gone through, well, it's funny, like sometimes Somebody doesn't get it, but others do. You know, you, you, mm -hmm. it depends where they're at. But the people that get it really resonate with it, and mm -hmm. they, there's you can tell there's there's a heaviness that's lifted from them. They yeah. they see, you know, people look at you strangely if you say you know suffering is redemptive. They they, they kind of know yes, but like why, how? Right. Well, physically, if you can give an analogy, yeah. venom can turn into antivenom. They're like, oh, oh, I or now yeah. it has now they. It, you know, there's a natural, you don't just, there's a natural analogy that gives you a reason for the supernatural reason right. why they're suffering. Right. So it, it's, it, it works with people, you know. Yeah. So. Now you're, you're the director at the Rosary Shrine of St. Yeah, Jesus. so the Rosary Shrine started in the 1920s, uh, right during the Depression. Uh, people uh, were losing hope, a uh, difficult situation. The Dominicans started spreading this devotion to St. Jude. It was the thing that over time used to, uh, you know, the proceeds of the people, you know, sending in some donations for the Shrine of St. Jude paid for our formation costs. And, uh, but we let it dwindle in the 80s, and I was able to build it up over the last six years. And uh, uh, it's one of the things, <laughs> it's, it's funny, like, uh, I help raise money for the 70 guys that are studying for the priesthood. Mm -hmm. And somebody said when I took over the job, how do you sleep at night? That's like putting 70 kids through college for seven years. <laughs> I said, I sleep like a baby. I wake up every two hours, I cry my eyes out. <laughs> but there's things like the St. Jude Shrine that others have helped me with revive it and, mm -hmm. um, and just getting other things organized. We have 18 parishes. We have eight campus ministries. I just started reaching out to the people we're serving and God provides, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But we never had that in place. So it just mm. was a lot of work. So the, I, I work this. I work at the Shrine of Saint Jude, and I, and we've revived that. And we we a lot of people are interested in that. And um, and I I travel around to our 18 parishes and various campus ministries, and I make an annual appeal for our guys in formation. Yeah. But that just that requires a lot of work. Yeah. And I preach, and mm -hmm. it's it's, it, it's something very pastoral about it. You know, there's a lot of people that support us, so there's a lot of people to visit. Yeah. Are you drawing? I know Washington's got a lot of young young adults. Do you draw a lot of them to the? Shrine? A little bit, um, yeah, a little bit. Um, it's it's something that more though the people are. Uh, it's funny, like the people that are really devoted to St. Jude, they're not really interested in our vocations program. That, that's another group, um, but um, we try to preach to them. We try to, you know, give them a. Uh, our perspective on spirituality and we write a newsletter which we didn't before we, we're trying to educate them and we do masses for them so so but a lot of it is uh, people that just they just want to be included in a novena that we're given and some people visit but it's uh, they already have their devotion to St. Jude and they're not really interested in doing a 
in, in the West Coast, the Shrine of St. Jude, people visit there in big numbers. Mm -hmm. Ours, we try to get people to visit, but they don't really visit too much. <laughs> they just want our prayers <laughs> at, during, during Novena of a Mass. It's like maybe twice a year they'll participate in a Novena, send yeah. in an intention. Yeah. And do you think, like, I know there's practical explanations, things for the, the growth in vocations with the Dominicans. I always also wonder about the charism you know, to preach and teach and, you know, how important that would be for an evangel new evangelization. And, and especially, like, we've interviewed so many Dominicans at Life in the Rock over the years and, you know, these PhDs. Uh, I remember one was in math and physics and all that. They don't I mean, all have that, but some of the guys <laughs> do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I I, the guys you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, and I, I remember if I was at a conference, you all give those conferences for priests. Yeah. And one was on preaching. And Father Dominic Legg? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I remember... He was a lawyer. And, yeah. And yeah, he went to Yale undergrad. I mean, law school. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah, went off for a doctoral degree in Switzerland. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, very gifted. Yeah. Um, and, we, yeah, so we have some really gifted people. But, you know, same with, like, uh, our, the successor of St. Dominic was Blessed Jordan of Saxony. He wasn't a great scholar. He was a great preacher. And we have certain guys that are not, they don't have PhDs yeah, in philosophy yeah. or theology or the sciences, right. uh, but they're really good preachers. So we've always had both. Uh -huh. uh, we've had guys who are really good pastors and, uh, and some guys who are um, really good academics uh, and guys who are really good itinerant preachers. So it really depends. Yeah. Uh, we've always had that mix. And that's the nice thing. Like I was a little intimidated coming in. I was, I, I, I can get a master's degree, but I'm not going. I'm not going to teach, you know, and um, and it was, um, but um, that's not a factor in Dominican life. It's really nice, yeah. and indirectly, just by picking people's brains at lunch and dinner, you can learn a lot. I've learned so much just by dinner conversation with guys. You can really, over time. Uh, it's great. It's just like having a walking professor around, you know. So, <laughs> so I, I guess I cheated in that respect. I, I didn't want to. Well, if your gifts, if I had a real gift for it, yeah. I, I think I would have pursued it. I just yeah. wasn't. Yeah. Wasn't mine. You know. I started writing the STL paper, and it just it wasn't. It wasn't for me. Yeah. Yeah. And now, after being a priest a number of years, um, what are some of your reflections just on that? Like persevering in the priesthood and maybe pitfalls yeah. and. Yeah. I knew coming in, like in the 90s, I was ordained in 2000, I was ordained in Italy, but I could tell the leadership, quite frankly, for the most part, there were a couple of really good people, but there was a real weakness. I could tell there was a real lack of, there was inertia or there was just something was up, you know, yeah. like, yeah, we all know the McCarrick yeah. scandal. Yeah. I knew about that. I didn't know for sure, but I heard mm -hmm. people talking about it. And he just knew there was there was charism and uh, just lack of leadership mm -hmm. um, in a lot of places. And um, and yet I saw a movement coming in. You saw all these John Paul II seminarians mm -hmm. in these dioceses, guys entering religious orders of all different types. You saw, you saw there was a movement, and I think everybody had a pretty good sense. The church is not in the greatest of shape, to say the least. Mm -hmm. You know. But nobody was deterred by that. Like you're being called, 
Yeah. And if you're called, you're called. You know, right, right. whether the war is going well or not, you're going <laughs> to go. You know, you don't have to. You know, you're not getting yeah. drafted, yeah. but it, you're you're being called. Yeah. So um, I, I and so I think one of the things I have to say of like since this summer, um, 2018, you realize a lot of the lady didn't realize how bad it was, and now they now they see. I think a lot of us knew how bad it was when, when we were going in, and. Uh, I feel bad for the people, but it's like, oh, it's good. It's got to get out. And But the church has been through even worse times. I mean, uh, Pope Benedict IX was not a medieval pope, but uh, had uh, real problems. And so the church had bad problems before, you know. Yeah. And saints come up. The, the renewals, it comes from St. Francis, St. Catherine, St. Dominic. Mm -hmm. It usually comes from the ground up. It doesn't come from the top down. It's nice. Mm -hmm when there's a John Paul II that gives a good boost to the church, yeah, right? Yeah. But most of that doesn't, yeah. it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. And even John Paul II, he inspired people from the bottom up. It didn't yeah. come from, now I'm gonna form great bishops and these bishops are gonna form. Yeah. It happened in certain places, but yeah. in general it didn't. He, he yeah. had to deal with a lot of difficult people. You yeah. know, he couldn't yeah. fix everything. And um, yeah, so I, th I think that's, uh, I think people, every one of us can do something. We just have to concentrate on what we can do. Not mm -hmm. G.K. Chesterton, everybody was complaining in the London Times like in 1905, talking about what's wrong with the world. And they had a series of London Times articles and they were picking different things and everybody was writing in and they were covering different topics of what's wrong with this, what's wrong with that. He finally wrote, wrote in and says, Dear Sirs, what's wrong with the world? Dear Sirs, I am sincerely G.K. <laughs> Chesterton. <laughs> right, right. You know, and, and I think that's a reality. Even if we lived in a good time of the church, that doesn't mean anything to us personally about what you know. Yeah. We it's, it's up to us what, yeah, you know, yeah. whether something works or not. Yeah, I just I was at a fundraiser for some radio stations locally, and. Um, and they gave an award to a local Dawson priest, and he just gave a short little talk, and he, he, he loved St. Francis, and he said, you know, it was a corrupt time, he was leading this renewal, you know, rebuild my church, and he said, you know, you, you don't read about, in Francis's writings, you don't see him railing on bishops and priests and all this kind That's of stuff. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like, yeah. he's... And it was a bad time. It was, yeah, it was a bad <laughs> time, so... Yeah. It was a bad timing you didn't read about. It. That's yeah, true. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking with yeah, us. Yeah, sure. And, uh, thanks sure. for coming down. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Father.